All right. Romans chapter 6, verse 1. Um, before we start, guys, I want to I, I want to communicate something, um, and I feel like I do this often because it's usually true. <laughs> uh, I'm biased sometimes towards the Word of God. I just love it, um, but I, I want to communicate this to you just just before we get into this. That this is one of the most important concepts in your entire walk with Christ. Um, I know that's like whoa, <laughs> you know, um, but it is. It really is. We're going to be talking about not just allowing Christ to die for us, but also living with Him. Right? We're going to be talking about that concept tonight. And I really want us to understand that. Uh, I, I think it's incredibly important because I think for a lot of people, Jesus is their savior, but he's not their Lord. Right? Um, where, oh yeah, Christ died for my sins, which means I get to go to heaven, but Christ doesn't rule and reign over my life. Um, and this isn't a sermon that's going to come down on any of you and be like, why don't you do more? Right? That's, it's, not, it's not going to be that, but it's going to be more like, why would you continue to live in sin when there's something so great for you, right? Um, and we're going to learn about that tonight because Jesus so tenderly communicates to us. Um, and I'm, I'm just really excited to get into it with you. So Romans chapter 6, verse 1. says this, What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Certainly not. How shall we who died to sin live any longer in it? Or do you not know that as many of us as were baptized into Jesus were baptized into his death? Therefore, we were buried with him through baptism into death. And just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. For if we have been united together in the likeness of his death, certainly we also shall be in the likeness of his resurrection. Knowing this, that our old man was crucified with him, or woman, that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves of sin. For he who has died has been freed from sin. Now, if we died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him. Knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, dies no more. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death that he died, he died to sin once and for all. Hallelujah. But the life that he lives, he lives to God. Likewise, you also reckon yourselves to be dead indeed to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Verse 12, therefore do not let sin reign in your mortal body, that you should obey it in its lusts. And do not present your members as instruments of unrighteousness to sin, but present yourselves to God as being alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. Verse 14, for sin shall not have dominion over you, for you are not under the law, but under grace. Let's pray. Father, we, uh, we just want to grow with you. We want to grow in you, Jesus. I pray that tonight would not be just some other night. We sit in a chair and we pretend to listen and we go off feeling better about ourselves because we went to church. But tonight would be a night where we come into contact with our Savior. Tonight would be a night where we get to commune on a deeper level with the creator of our souls. May we have ears to listen, myself included, Jesus. May I not be beyond learning something tonight. May we all be humble enough to say, I don't know exactly how this life thing works. May we all be humble enough to admit that we do need your guidance. We do need your direction. We do need your word. We do need your spirit. Honor that humility tonight, the hearts that seek you. And for any hearts that might be hardened here tonight, I pray that you'd soften them. Penetrate them with your word and your glory, Jesus. May tonight not be about some show or being entertained, but simply about learning more about you. We love you, Jesus, and it's in in your precious and holy name that we pray. Amen. So guys, tonight, I talk about grace. And here's the thing. Here's the thing that you don't normally hear. Grace is incredibly dangerous. Grace 
as we know it in the Bible, is incredibly dangerous. It's it's frightening, honestly. Grace is dangerous because the concept of committing cosmic treason towards the creator of the universe, the concept of us running away from the very God that created us for his glory, the concept of straying away from him, denying him, and sinning against God daily, every day of our lives, and then all of a sudden him saying, hey, I forgive you. That concept is dangerous of us, of, of us living in this sin and in this pit of our own despair and in this consequence of our own mistakes, living in that for such a long time and then having God say, not only do I forgive you, but I'm going to give you paradise for eternity. To have God say that can be dangerous because what if people say, well, if I can get away with an entire life of sin and then just have God say, hey, you're good. Well, can I just keep going, right? The way I want to go. And we may not say this explicitly, right? But our subconscious and our sinful nature kind of says that subconsciously, doesn't it? Where it's like, well, there's, there's, here's grace available to me. Here's forgiveness that's available to me. Can't I still exist in this pattern of selfishness, Right? Can't I still just be doing what I want to do and then have God's grace cover me in the end, right? Isn't that okay? And and, and guys, honestly, I think this is where legalism sprouts from. I think this is where legalism, you know, those like staunch, uptight um, Christians that, you know, the world loves to like make fun of on TV, right? Those hypocrites, you know, like the Angela's from the office, you know, those types of Christians, right? Right. Like, well, like that's, that's the Christian that's like personified on television, the hypocritical, right? Judgmental, staunch, like uh, just gray, wearing gray all the time. For some reason, they're gray and pale all the time, Right. For some reason, like that, that's, that's how the media likes to portray Christians. And, I, and, and, and we have this kind of tendency to like be very off-put by those types of people, right? The judgmental people, the people who are like, well, you have to follow this rule and this rule and this rule and this rule, even if it's not in the Bible. But as I study the text more, I, I kind of understand where they're coming from. I understand. Do you know why I understand? I understand because... They are saying, I, I, I think they come from this fear of grace where they're saying, well, if Christians think that God will just forgive them of anything, then won't our society just be chaos? What's going to be the difference between Christians and the world, you know? And so I understand where legalism comes from. I understand where those types of Christians are coming from when they're saying, well, but there has to be rules, there has to be boundaries because people are just going to go off doing whatever the heck they want if they think God will just forgive them of anything. So just put a little bit of fear in them, right? Just put a little bit of fear. Make them afraid of God, that he's going to pour out his wrath on them or he's going to punish them. Which if you have been listening to Pastor Mark for long enough, you've heard this, that God do, does not punish you for your sin. He does not punish you for your sin because if he did punish you for your sin, that is essentially saying that the cross was not good enough. And this is what the church in Rome was thinking, right? We got to remember, you know, uh, Paul's writing this to the church in Rome. Rome is exactly like America, guys. Man, it's imperialistic, right? It's very hierarchical, right? It's very worldly. Um, It's very progressive, right? Rome, if you look at Rome, it's, it's very similar to America, right? Um, we like to think that we're the, this moral high ground, right? But, but we are very similar, right, to the Roman Empire. And, and, and so we are very similar. And, and, and so the, the people of Rome were asking kind of the same questions that we ask today, where it's like, well, you know, what shall we say then? Like, can, can we continue in sin, and some of you don't like to call it sin. You like to call it like, oh, this is my lifestyle, you know? Um, or it's my right, my, <laughs> you know, something like that. Um, sometimes we, we our, our world has this way of not labeling sin, sin, you know? Um, we'll label it something different. We'll package it differently. You know what I mean? Um, we'll call it being progressive or being open-minded, you know? We'll, 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 we'll label it differently, you know, to make you think like you are, 
uh, on the moral high ground for disobeying God, right? Um, our culture loves to do that. And, and so this is, this is the question that the Romans are asking. Can, can we, like, what's the point of the law then? Like, what's the point of rules? Like, what's, I don't understand, like, you know? What are the point of God's commands if he's just going to forgive us no matter what we do? All right? And so Paul says, what shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Paul asked this question that, that we may not, once again, we may not ask this explicitly, but our, our subconscious thinks about this. If you've, if you've been a Christian for more than, I would say, a week, right? You understand this concept between, I know God wants me to do this, but I know I really want to do this. And I know if I do this, God's going to forgive me anyways, right? He asks, should we just do our own thing because grace has us covered, right? Should we just do our own thing because grace has us covered? Can't we just do what makes us happy and hope that people don't judge us, you know? Can I just do what makes me happy knowing that God loves me anyways? Paul says, certainly not. Certainly not. And in the Greek, the word certainly not, it's one word. And it's, it's this expression that means don't even think about it. Get it out of your minds. Don't even consider it. Don't even consider it. He says this in verse 2. Certainly not. How shall we who die to sin live any longer in it? Or do you not know that as many of us as were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? And therefore we are buried with him through baptism into death. That just as Christ was raised from the dead by glory of the Father, even so we should walk in the newness of life. First Paul says, first Paul says, how should we who died in sin live any longer in it, Right? He says, why the heck would you want to stay in this crap, right? Why would you want to stay in it anyway? So this is his first point. Paul is making a really big point. I was spending some time, you know, in, uh, in Indiana a few years ago. Um, no water anywhere. Um, no uh, culture anywhere, right? Um, and, and, and I was sitting around with some people and they're like, hey, what should we eat? And they're like, do you know what sounds really good? Mexican food. And I'm like, oh, Mexican food sounds pretty good. Um, do you know where they took me? Taco Bell. <laughs> I'm Cal- Southern California, born and raised, right? I, 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 am, I am Thousand Oaks, Malibu, and Santa Barbara Carpinteria, right? That is, that is my life. When, when you say we're going to Mexican food, I picture going to like Guadalajara, right? Yeah, or Stablos, Meemar, that's, that's what I pay, that is my Mexican food, all right, authentica, right, that is, that is how I live, right, that is how I live, muy bien, yes, muy bien, and so that is, that is, when, when I picture Mexican food, that's it, right, they go to Taco Bell, and I lose my mind, right, I lose, it gets me furious still thinking about it, right? It gets me furious. And do you know what? Do you know what, guys? They don't know any better, but I do. (laughs) They don't know that there's so much greatness (laughs) lying outside of that terrible establishment, toxic hell. They know, they don't know any better, but I do, right? And so do you know what? Do you know what, guys? What Paul is saying here, what Paul is saying is that why, Zach, on earth would you go back to Taco Bell when you live just like two seconds away from Establos, right? That's, that's kind of like, that is the Zach standard version of the Bible. That's, that's my interpretation of it. It's saying, it's saying, when you have tasted the goodness of Christ, why on earth would you go back to something so debased and unfulfilling? That's what Paul is saying. He's saying right here, how shall we who died to sin live any longer in it? If Christ put to death your sin on the cross, why would you go back? First of all, why are you asking the question? Oh, well, can I still do this, right? Why? Why would you ask that question? When you know how good a life with Christ is, you shouldn't want to go back. But we do, don't we? Don't we? Don't we at 12 a.m. 
and we're so hungry, <laughs> right? You've been doing finals, right? you've been studying for finals, you, do you know what, I deserve an empanada right now. <laughs> and we go back to it, as a dog returns to its own vomit, the Bible says, so we return to our own sin. Or do you not know that as many of us as were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Therefore, we were buried with him through baptism into death. That just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we should walk in the newness of life. This means that Christ, when he was on the cross, he took your sin, he took that baggage he took all the, just the crud that you surround yourself in. And he said, this, all this stuff, all this selfishness, all this sin, all this stuff that you've covered yourself in, it keeps you from a relationship with me. So I am going to bear the punishment of your sin so that you don't have to deal with the separation. Jesus said, I will be separated from God so that you don't have to be separated from God. That's why when Jesus was hanging on the cross, he said, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? In that moment, there was complete separation between Jesus and God. The separation that is beyond any sort of physical pain the crucifixion could ever give him. The separation from God the Father, that eternal bond that Jesus and God had for all, from all of eternity was severed. And he experienced that so that you wouldn't have to. So he took your sin and he killed it on the cross. And we like this. We like the idea of the cross because it means forgiveness. It means, all right, I don't have to be punished for my sin anymore because Christ was punished for me. I don't have to deal with the consequences, the eternal consequences of my sin because Christ dealt with the eternal consequences of my sin. So this is great. However, we don't often think about the new life that awaits us after that because Christ didn't just die, right? We just had Easter Christ didn't just die with your sin. He rose again. Proving that death and sin and decay, the spiritual entropy that happens to all of us has no power and has no place in our lives. And so what Paul is saying is that you want to be crucified with Christ because it means that you're forgiven and you're not going to deal with consequences. But do you know what? You're missing this radical life that he has for you. So, so guys, it says right here in verse 5. Go to verse 5 before I get ahead of myself. Getting excited over God's word. So good. In verse 5. For if we have been united together in the likeness of his death, certainly we also shall be in the likeness of his resurrection, knowing this, that our old man or woman was crucified with him, that the body of sin might be done away with that we should no longer be slaves of sin. For he who has died has been freed from sin. Now if we die with Christ, we believe that we should also live with him. Guys, this word united, it says we've been united together in the likeness of his death, and then we've been united in his resurrection. It's a very interesting word. Deep in the Greek, it's, very, uh, it's a word that I, I can't pronounce even if I tried. Um, but you, you guys have heard my Spanish so far. And it's, I'm not even going to attempt Greek. And so, and, and this word united, it, it, it means in its original language, as, as two trees, their roots intersect. And how they, 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 they grow from the same nutrition, the same nutrients, and the same soil, and they actually grow with one another. How trees, sometimes when their roots intertwine, where they will start growing at the same rate and the same pace where it says we have been united together in the likeness of his death and united in his resurrection meaning that we are as close to Jesus as one could be so close that we are drafted into who he is that's why in the bible it rarely describes us as Christians that's a term that we use to describe ourselves but the bible doesn't really describe us like that the world 
calls us Christians because it means little Christ means, oh, you look like Christ, right? That term is very loose nowadays, I'd say, with the way people act. But, but, but the word that is used for us isn't Christian, but in Christ. We are in Christ. We are a part of him. We're part of his body. We're part of his bride. We're part of, part of his family. We are in Christ. In him. We are united together in the likeness of his death and in the likeness of his resurrection. We're united together with him. And I don't think we realize sometimes how united with Christ we are. Our identities are linked with his now. Do we understand that? Do you understand that if you have received the Holy Spirit, the guarantee, the seal of our inheritance, as it says in Ephesians chapter 1, that if you have received Christ, that if you have received his Holy Spirit, that that means that anything that is true of Christ... God now sees true of you. That his holiness, his righteousness has been put onto your account. It has been accredited to you. Meaning it's yours now, right? It is yours. And so we are united in every sense with Christ. And that is how God sees us. And this means, brothers and sisters, that that. Living with Christ is so much more than, hey, stop sinning. Living with Christ, a Christ-filled life, is so much more than, stop that. No, right? It's so much more, brothers and sisters. For those of you that grew up around this moralistic and religious rhetoric of just behave and don't screw up and you'll be fine, I'm telling you that that is not the gospel. For those of you that have grown up in this, in this, in, in this going to kids ministry and only hearing how to be a good person but never learning about who Jesus is, those of you who grew up in a Christian household that may have just told you, hey, just don't screw up. Just, just get good grades, don't screw up, behave yourself. And that's what being a Christian is all about. I'm here to tell you, as a pastor, that that is the antithesis of the gospel. That is not what the gospel preaches. It is so much more than just behave. The gospel is that God loves you with such an immeasurable amount of love. That he saw in you a child that was worth dying for. That God, the creator God of the universe, would endure all the separation that you would not have to. The gospel is rooted in the very fact that you cannot just behave and be good enough. In order for us to receive the gospel, we we must first realize that in and of ourselves, there's really nothing good going for us apart from Jesus. And so isn't it weird that in order to receive the gospel, we're told you are imperfect and you'll never be perfect. That's why you need Jesus. And then when we become a Christian, all we hear is just be a good person. Just don't screw up. Just be a good person, right? Doesn't that seem very counterintuitive? That in order to receive the gospel, we must know how depraved we are. But then when, once we have the gospel, we, we're somehow supposed to be perfect, Right? The gospel is rooted in the very fact that you cannot be good enough for God. But he, in his grace, has decided to walk through life with you. 1 Corinthians 6.17 says, But the one who joins himself to the Lord is one spirit with him. That one who joins himself with the Lord, remember united, as two trees are united together. One who joins himself with the Lord is one spirit with him. Meaning this, guys, meaning this, that as we draw closer to Jesus, as we draw closer to Jesus, the one who knows us more than we even know ourselves, keep that in mind. Keep that in mind, that God knows you more than you know you. So all these things that you've dreamed up of why you're not good enough for God or why you're more good than God, right? All these things that you come up in your own mind. Know this, God knows you 
way more than you know you, right? You know all the things that you've done that nobody else knows about. Think about this, that God knows who you are. He knows the things you've done and he knows the depths of your heart that you can't even explore. And yet he still said, I totally want you in my family. I totally want you. I 100% want you. And in fact, I will die in order to get you into my family. I will sacrifice whatever it takes to get you, your heart. I want you. So, as we draw closer to Jesus, as we unite ourselves with him, we become more like him. We become more like him. So family, my family, we don't die, we don't just stop sinning, right? We don't, we don't just stop sinning. The, the death to ourselves that is talked about so much in the Bible is not the end goal. Just stop doing what you're doing. Okay, now what, right? I think sometimes it's so hard to stop sinning and it's so hard to let go idols in our lives because we haven't been presented with something far greater, you know? Dying to our sin is not the end. It's not just stop and then that's it. There's more. As we die to ourselves, there's new life awaiting us. As we die with Christ, as we allow him to crucify the old us, we rise again with Christ being new, living a new life. Good example is um, Megan and I were driving uh, to Santa Barbara uh, the other day, you know, just to go spend the day there, just hang out. And we were driving past all all these mountains on the 101, uh, kind of right before you hit Carpinteria, in between Ventura and Carpinteria, where there's all just campgrounds and railroads and farms and then the mountains next to the ocean. And uh, it's just such, so beautiful. And we were just admiring the fact that there's just so much wildflowers, guys. So many wildflowers. Just totally arraying the, the ent- all the mountains. Just, just it, it was so incredible, right? The ocean breeze coming in, the grass so green with the yellow wildflowers. Insane. And, and we were just in awe of how beautiful it was. And I turned to May and I, 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 I'm like, isn't, isn't this insane? that just like a year ago, there was a huge fire here. There was a huge fire that went all over the mountains. Right where all the green and the beautiful flowers are, there was fire and death. All that brush had to be burned. All the old had to be done away with and destroyed in order to create fertilizer for new life to begin. And, 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 and we don't realize this, guys, too often enough. I was doing this in my devotions that I don't realize enough that God is so in nature, you know? He isn't nature, right? He, he, it's not pantheism, right? He isn't nature, but he's so, his character is displayed in nature. Isn't it so like Christ to have, in order for new and beautiful life to begin, old and dead life must be destroyed? And isn't that what he says to us as believers, that in order to first live with Christ in the beauty of the newness of life, you must first put to death the old? You must first put to death all the other crud that you've accumulated in your life? Wouldn't it make sense, knowing God, that he is creator of all, your soul and the mountaintops, silhouetting Santa Barbara, knowing that he is the creator of both, wouldn't he, in his character, design you in similar forms? That in order for new life to begin, old life must die. In order for our souls to be renewed, the old man of the flesh must first be done away with. This is the rhythm of God's creation. Oldness is done away with. Newness has come. Warren Wearsby said this. He said, too many Christians are betweeners. They live between Egypt and Canaan, saved but not satisfied. Or they live between Good Friday and Easter, believing in the cross but not entering into the power and the glory of the resurrection. (laughs) Uh, a uh, 
an Orthodox, um, an Orthodox Christian um, minister, Bishop, said this. Jesse sent it to me last night while I was sermon prepping. He didn't even know we were going through Romans 6. It's pretty cool. It says, only in the light of the resurrection does life receive meaning. Which brings us to verse 8. Verse 8 says this. Now if we died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him. Knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, dies no more. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death that he died, he died to sin once and for all. But the life that he lives, he lives to God. Likewise, you also reckon yourselves to be dead indeed to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body, that you should obey it in its lusts. And do not present your members as instruments of unrighteousness to sin, but present yourselves to God as being alive from the dead, and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. For sin, listen to this, for sin shall not have dominion over you, for you are not under the law, but under grace. For sin shall not have dominion over you, For sin shall not have this grip over you. And some of you are thinking, yeah, but how, right? If you're anything like me, it's like, yeah, for sure. No more sin. (laughs) How the heck am I supposed to do that? Right? How the heck am I supposed to stop? How the heck am I supposed to stop with this pornography addiction? How in the heck am I supposed to stop gossiping in this way? How do I keep myself from this continual slate of lies and deceit? How how do I just cut off this unhealthy relationship that I've been in for years? We feel so helpless sometimes to sin. I feel like, I do at least. I feel so helpless. There's an interesting story. It's about a 14th century um, uh, about two brothers in the 14th century, and they fought the, the right to rule this one dukedom. Sounds fun. Dukedom. In what is now Belgium. Um, and these two brothers were fighting. The elder brother's name was Reynold, um, and he was commonly called Crassus. Um, and a Latin nickname meaning fat, right? So Crassus was very uh, morbidly obese. Right? He was a very large man. Um, and he was, yeah, he was very, very very obese. And after a heated battle um, between their two kingdoms, uh, Reynold's younger brother, Edward, he led a successful revolt against him and assumed the title of Duke over the lands. So, so the younger brother uh, conquered the older brother. So Edward conquered Crassus and he took over the dukedom. And he was advised not to execute his brother in order to gain his followers. And so he promised Reynold, he promised Crassus that he would not, um, he would not kill him, but he would. And he, he actually told his younger, his older brother, he said, listen, I know I've conquered you. It's mine, but if you can conquer it again, I fully open invitation. You can totally come and conquer it again. You could take back what is now Belgium. You could take Belgium back. If you can get out of your prison, if you can walk out, you can freely go. Now, here's the thing. Edward, being very clever and knowing his brother was, was very obese and, and had a gluttony problem, he actually built this room for Crassus. He built this room that had normal-sized doors, totally normal-sized doors, and he could open it and walk through anytime he wants if he lost a little bit of weight and so he could fit through. He said, if you can fit through, if you can fit through these doors, you can walk out and take Belgium back. And Crassus was in this room and his younger brother, Edward, would just keep sending food his way into the room. He'd have his servants just walk, walk, open up the door and have just a plate, an array of food right there. And they'd be like, here you go. And all Crassus had to do was refrain himself a little bit and show some self-control. 
And he could just freely walk out the door and take back his kingdom and conquer. But he was so consumed in his sin of gluttony that he ended up dying in that room with a full belly. Don't we feel like crashes sometimes in our sin? Where Jesus has, has given this opportunity, right? To just freely walk out and take, take our victory. Here's victory right here. And, and I, I think sometimes I'm like Crassus in the sense that I see the end. I can see the victory. I can see myself conquering. But there's just this, this sin keeping me. Right? I'm not saying Jesus is the sadistic younger brother, right? But I think the enemy presents things to us. He's just silver platter, just full of food right in front of us. And if we were to just refrain, we would realize just the amazing life that is lived, that could be lived outside those doors. But we don't. I think it's hard. I think it's really hard. I don't want to downplay what some of you feel heavily. The despair that you feel that you're caught in certain sins and that you just can't seem to stop. I, I, I don't want to belittle that because you know what? I, I have my own sins that I'm seriously wrestling with. Some are internal, some are external. I think it's so hard for us because we think that giving up sin or trying is almost a waste of time. I think we're told, hey, you need to stop with this. You need to start pursuing God. But, and some people try to like fear or guilt tactics, but those only work temporarily, right? You know, you can only be guilted into not sinning so long, right? Until you just become numb to the guilty feelings, right? We must look back to Romans 1. In Romans 1, it said that we are set apart from the gospel, what we learned in the first week of this series in Romans chapter 1 is that the, the word set apart is ad hariso, meaning a different horizon. Meaning that there's so much newness for you. There's so much potential, there's so much beauty, there's so much majesty that you can go out and take because Jesus has made it available to you. That set apart doesn't mean, oh, we're separated from the world, right? But set apart means there's so much greater things to pursue. And I think it's so hard because we've been told our entire lives, we've been conditioned to think that our potential is only as great as our education, that our success is only measured by money or status. That our looks are only as good compared to other people. That society will tell us to dream big and shoot for the stars. But that only means that uh, we're rich and pretty and smart and educated or famous. Where, where our concept of success is so much different because of what society has told us. When Jesus says, I have so much better and so much potential for you. And our minds were like, what, more money? Oh, you mean people will like me more? That's like our definition of success. And it's so ingrained in our minds that when we stop sinning and we realize that sometimes people still don't like us or that we didn't get any more money, we're like, well, what's the point? Then we have this countercultural movement that claims authenticity, right? Isn't that the big thing now? Authenticity? See all those fake adventure photos on Instagram, right? It's all these authentic people, you know, with their coffee and their notebook, like everyone else, right? But they are all, all they are doing, guys, there's all of these Instagram posts and blogs and movements showing us how to be trendy or authentic, but all they're doing is feeding their own egos, getting more likes, Right? the people with all of their blogs and their posts about authenticity claim to be above like this mainstream culture. But at the end of the day, they like you are at home in bed just wondering if people like them, if what they're doing has purpose. I think, I think sometimes the, the culture that we're in where we see everything about people, like people just post this fake stuff that we watch and we somehow think that that's their lives and then we, you know what I mean? 
where you spent an entire day at home watching Netflix, eating chocolate, and then you go on Instagram already feeling terrible about yourself and see, oh, all these people doing great and amazing things. Doesn't it make you depressed? Doesn't it make you feel like, man, I'm just, I, like, no matter what I do, right? Because everybody else, like, somehow, like, there's this success, and if I stop sinning, I'm not going to be that, right? I'm not going to be anywhere near there. I'm not going to be anywhere near as successful as them or as popular as them or as whatever. I'll never be as happy as them. What is our motivation? What do we see as successful? Do we want to look better? Is our motivation for not sinning just being a, a good Christian? Is our motivation... Is our motivation to get liked more? Is our motivation to seem authentic or to seem different? Is our motivation to not sinning? Is it simply to build yourself up and to look better? Because I think sometimes, guys, what's hardest for me when I'm, when I'm caught in sin is that it's easiest to keep the sin that nobody sees. It's easiest to keep the baggage and the bitterness that nobody sees because, you know, it's really, it's really easy nowadays to put on a face. A couple clicks and you can tell everybody that you're doing great, even when you're not. So sometimes it's so easy to keep our sin hidden. It's so easy to keep this darkness. Because it seems like every time we try, it fails. Or even when we do succeed, what we thought would, it would give us, it didn't give us. Or is our motivation to discover what God is really like? See guys, no amount of guilt, no amount of status. I, I, I cannot bribe you into stopping sinning. I cannot bribe you into giving up this terrible relationship you're in. I cannot convince you by some sort of status or fame that if you stop this sin, you'll do it. I will not, I will not, I will not give up my sin unless there's something greater and more fulfilling at the end of it. That is why the concept that's with sacrifice and death comes new life. That's why it's so important. Is your motivation, where is it? Because I'm going to tell you, if your motivation to stop sinning, to no longer be in sin, that grace may abound, if it is not to discover the newness of life with Christ, you're not going to stop. All the gossip you find yourself in, if you do not first taste and see how much better it is to build people up and to encourage and to use your voice as words of building and creating and bringing out God's creation in such a magnificent way, if you don't first realize that there's something better than gossip, you're not going to stop. And that's why it says in Ephesians chapter 3, and I'll close here, I'll close here, I promise. In Ephesians chapter 3, verse 14, it says this. For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and the length and the height and the depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses all knowledge that you may be filled with the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all you could ever ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be the glory in the church and in the Christ Jesus through all generations forever and ever. Amen. Oh man, guys, if that's the point, is that you might discover what is the breadth and the length and height and depth, that you might discover you might discover and come to this knowledge of who Christ is. 
that you might understand who he is. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we can ask or think. Realizing this, that what you can imagine for yourself, the good life of no sin, and if I could just stop this or stop this, if, if you can get in your heads that God will do more than ever, you could ever imagine, that's good motivation, right? Not that, okay, well, if I do A, then I'll get B, right? If I stop sinning, God will give me a husband or wife, right? If I, if I stop cheating, uh, God will bless me with good grades, right? If we can get out of our minds this assuming what God's going to give us in return for not sinning, if we can get out of our heads that God will return A for B or B for A, then, then we're going to realize something. We're going to realize something amazing that beyond my sacrifice of my sin and turning away from the, these bad habits and these things of mine, that what lies on the other side is something greater than I could ever imagine. That's where the motivation comes in. That a life with, and, and guys, be real with you. A lot of people think that the only reason we're Christians is because we don't like death. That we can't handle the fact that we you know, die. That we, we want to see our loved ones again, right? I'm going to tell you something. What's going to be great about heaven isn't that you're going to see your family again. What's great about heaven uh, isn't that there's going to be no more pain. What's great about heaven isn't the fact that you're going to get to talk to your grandma or your grandpa again or that you're going to get to talk to your husband or your wife again or your brother or your sister. The great thing about heaven is not that you're going to be in, with rose paved with gold and that you're never going to be hungry anymore, right? Like that's the, the end of suffering is not the awesome thing about heaven. Do you know what the awesome thing about heaven is? We get to be with Jesus. We need to be with Jesus. And I know that's hard sometimes because we can only fathom being with Jesus in our sinful state. But think about this. All sin is swept away and we're with Jesus and we can see him for who he is. That's amazing. Let your motivation to stop and to start be that you get to discover more of who your creator is. That you get to be on a new horizon. You get to be more. You get to experience more. The Christian life is just, it's not a list of don'ts. It's a list of come see what's better. Right? Come see what's better. And so we're going to take communion, guys. We're going to take communion tonight. And wherever the worship team is, I'm going to ask them to come back up and... um, going to be taking communion tonight and communion is it's super special for tonight it's super special for for tonight for a specific reason that by taking communion we identify with christ's death and his, his his taking our sin and nailing it to the cross right the bread here it's not just some creepy religious thing that we do right Right? Even though some people make it out to be that way. It's not, it's not just some weird religious thing that Christians do. It is a symbol of the body that was broken for you. And the blood that was, thank you, Chris. And the blood that was shed for you. It's a symbol of the newness of life, guys. Don't look at them. Look at me. Right? I know it's hard. As, as we partake in the bread, I need you guys to imagine something. That God's body was broken, right? So that we might be a part of his greater body of Christ, right? That he endured separation from God. That we might have not only unity with God, but with each other. That's why it's great that we take communion together as the body of Christ, right? And what's amazing about drinking the blood, it's, it, it's, not, it's not this weird, creepy vampire thing that's going on, Right? that we partake in the blood of Christ because Christ said, I'm going to shed my blood, my pure blood that is undefiled with sin and it is going to be poured on top of you. That when God, when you get to heaven, God is not going to see you in the dirtiness of your sin. He's going to see Christ in his righteousness. 
And so as we worship and as we thank God for all that he's done and we praise him, we're also going to take part in communion. If you so desire, you don't have to. It actually says in scripture that if you don't have the right heart, don't do it at all, right? So you don't have to do this, but it's here for you. And I encourage you guys to worship, worship in a way that your posture reflects your heart, and, and I know that's weird because, you know, we, we're really afraid of being crazy, right? Um, but here's, here's what I think. Here's what I think, guys. Um, that lifting your hands is a universal sign of I give up, right? I, I, I give up. I surrender, right? It, it's the universal sign of I, I, I surrender, Right, so how, how on earth can we go out there and how on earth can we go out there and surrender our sin if we can't even be in a posture of I surrender before God and worship, right? I surrender. And do you know what lifting your hands also is? It's also the universal sign of victory. Every culture, Justin was talking about this earlier, that, that across every culture, it doesn't matter whether it's South American, North American, whether it's Middle Eastern or European, when there's victory, everyone lifts up their hands, right? In a soccer game or whatever it may be, everyone's like, yes, that's in every culture. And so why, when knowing that Jesus has given us victory over our sin, why wouldn't we do that too, right? Lifting our hands. So I encourage you, partake in communion if that's something that helps you in your posture of worship. Lift your hands or don't lift them at all, but let's worship God tonight in a newness of life, knowing that he's done away with our sin, that it no longer has power over us. Amen? Amen. Father, we, we praise you tonight, and I pray that uh, tonight, uh, in these last few songs of worship, it'd be precious to you, that it'd be sweet to you, God. Um, it's an amazing concept that you're in heaven right now, and you're listening to this. You're enjoying it. I think that's so amazing how when we're alone in our rooms or on a walk or in the car, what sometimes makes us most joyful is just listening to music. And I, I think it's amazing that you find enjoyment, a similar enjoyment in hearing us praise you. So I pray that we'd sing to you as if you're listening and enjoying it. I have such a bad singing voice, Lord, but you love it because it's offering of praise to you. I pray for everyone's heart in here, God, that as they leave, they'd have a new motivation to stop sinning, God, that it's not just, oh, Christians aren't supposed to be bad people, but it's more so, there's so much more greater things awaiting me than this filth I just decide to stay in. So Holy Spirit, we need you to come in and motivate us. We need you, Lord, to uh, dwell within us, Lord. Help us, Jesus. We cannot help ourselves, so we need you. May tonight uh, be a night where we honor you and praise you, unhinged and unabashed and unashamed, lifting up holy hands to you. We love you, we praise you, and it's in Christ's holy name we pray. Amen. I love you guys. Let's worship.